Episode 157, historian Dennis Crawford, expert on the life of Johnny Bassett, former owner in professional sports leagues, including the original USFL. That's that's such a wonderful name for a show and for a concept. It's, um, I don't know if it's favorite, but it's probably the most defining of my life. And that is that... I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes. But what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. To learn more about Dennis and his book and more, look for links in the show notes or go to markraben.com slash mistake157. As always, thanks for listening. And now, Dennis Crawford. Hi, everybody. Welcome to My Favorite Mistake. I'm Mark Raven. My guest today is Dennis Crawford. He's author of the book titled The Life and Teams of Johnny F. Bassett, Maverick Entrepreneur of North American Sports. Uh, so Dennis holds a PhD in American Studies. He teaches at Youngstown State University, and he's managing editor for The Coffin Corner, the official magazine of the Professional Football Researchers Association. Um, so before I tell you a little bit more about Dennis, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Oh, well, thank you very much for having me, Mark. It's, uh, it's a pleasure uh, to appear on your, on your show. Well, it's, it's great to have you here. And as I've disclosed in some other episodes. Occasionally, I've had opportunity to interview someone I've known for a long time, whether it's a friend from high school or somebody with a college connection. But um, people watching on YouTube might not realize or might not guess the connection because we're roughly the same age. Dennis is technically my uncle um, because my dad's sister, who he'd married, was was in kindergarten when I was born. So not to make it a family history lesson, um, I don't, I don't call them aunt and uncle, but, uh, that's okay. Although I think legally I am legally, not just technically. Yeah. (laughs) Fair enough. Um, I, yeah. Uh, uncle Dennis, welcome to the podcast. It's probably no offense. The only time I've called you uncle Dennis so directly. Right. And and that's okay. It will be the only time I ever expected it. Okay. Is that, that yeah, it's probably not a mistake to, to just Dennis. Yes. Again, like that. I don't, anyway, Uncle Dennis doesn't sound right. Just does, just Dennis doesn't sound right. I'm going to quit stammering through <laughs> that. <laughs> so um, well, we talk about your book and, and we're going to talk about mistakes and all sorts of realms. Before we talk about your favorite mistake, Dennis, um, in, in a nutshell, real quick, I mean, fascinating, fascinating man and career and life. Um, in a nutshell, who was Johnny Bassett? Why write a book about him and his life and his career? Well, I started to write about him because I was going to originally write a book about the Tampa Bay Bandits, his team in the United States Football League. And as I began to do the research of that, um, a lot of memories started firing off in my head because I had grown up in Tampa Bay uh, during the 70s and 80s during the height of what was known as the Bandit Ball era. And I just became enamored with his showmanship. Um, I came to learn that he was called a Canadian P.T. Barnum. 
Um, although I know sometimes Barnum can have a bad reputation, he was a great showman, and so was Bassett. He had fun uh, creating sporting spectacles, and he took great pains to make sure that the the fan experience, and they didn't even know the term fan experience at the time, but he took great pains to make sure the fan experience at any of his sporting events was prime. Um, he had a gift uh, for knowing what the common man wanted. And of course, that came with a lot of experience because as I'm sure we'll talk about later, he was not exactly a common man. He was he was born into a very wealthy and powerful family in Canada, but his work in sports led to him losing most of that fortune. And so he he did a very good job of learning from those losses in creating what I considered to be a sporting utopia in the Tampa Bay area for just the briefest of times. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's, uh, you, you mentioned Barnum. There's a difference between showman and shyster. Johnny Bassett was certainly not a shyster. He was a showman who was, it sounded like trying to do the right, the right things by, his community, his fans, his players, his organizations. Yes. Um, he had a belief that the man who paid the ticket had the right to the best experience possible. And so when he would go in and talk to his marketing team and was told, we can't do that, it's too expensive. His argument was it would be too expensive not to. <laughs> you know, yeah. I need to know the guy, the, the guy who put the quarter out for the ticket deserves more consideration than the guy who's putting thousands of dollars out because the guy who's putting out the quarter is really scratching to put that money in my wallet. And so he, he wanted to make sure the person who had the lowest price ticket had just as much fun as the one who paid uh, for the premium seats. Yeah. So there's a lot of great business lessons and he was doing a lot of innovative entrepreneurial things. So uh, again, the, the title of the book is The Life and Teams of Johnny F. Bassett, um, Dennis Crawford, the author and our guest today. Um, so before we come back and talk more about Johnny Bassett, you know, Dennis, is, as we always ask everybody here, um, what would you say is your favorite mistake? Uh, that's, that's, that's such a wonderful name for a show and for a concept. It's um. I don't know if it's favorite, but it's probably the most defining of my life. And that is that, um, as I said, I grew up in the Tampa Bay area uh, in the 70s and 80s and into the early 90s. And I was enamored with getting into sports journalism, sports broadcasting. Um, when I was at St. Petersburg Junior College, I had an internship at the local ABC affiliate. And then uh, as an undergraduate at Florida State, I got an internship with a Tampa-based uh, all-sports radio station. And so I learned, but in my um, arrogance and ignorance, I guess those go hand in hand when you're in your late teens and early 20s, I didn't make those opportunities work for me. Um because I felt I, I'm going to be a broadcaster. I'm, I'm going to be the one calling play by play, or I'm going to be the one uh, holding interview sessions. I don't need to worry about editing. I don't have to worry about tape archives. 
And so what happened was because I wasn't respectful enough of the craft at the time, other interns ended up having much better audition tapes than I did and ended up being able to answer questions much more intelligently during job interviews than I could have. And so um, at the time I regretted it. I guess I still regret it a little bit, but you know how life works. Um, things just kind of happen then after that um, and you move on. And what I discovered was the lesson I learned uh, from those mistakes was never ever to uh, look an opportunity. Um, you know, the old expression, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Never just assume the opportunity will lead to something unless you respect it enough to put all of your effort into it. And I think I have successfully done that um, in the years since. When an opportunity came to go and get a better education, get advanced degrees, um, I took advantage of that. I, I went back and got a master's in organizational communication and one of the methods that I learned was the historical method. And then I realized, oh, I really like history. So I started to use that historical method to then start doing more work in sports. And, and what I found is while it was embarrassing in the moment, I don't think I could have accomplished the level of sports-related research and hopefully entertaining books that I've created if I had actually become just another local sports guy uh, on your AM dial. Did, did you have a role model of an announcer who you, you would have emulated or, or wanted to be like somebody calling games nowadays? It would be, let's say the Tampa Rays on the local station, or it would have been different. At my, uh, during my time, the, the gold standard, and this was more national than local. The gold standard was Pat Summerall. Um, I, I just loved his style. He was very Spartan in what he said. Um, and I also think I liked him because my football team at the time, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers were so bad and Pat Summerall only called the best games that, you know, the one time maybe he would call a Buccaneer game. I was just right there because it was so exciting to realize, you know, Pat Summerall actually knows my team exists. Um, <laughs> yeah. but it was just that, that style and the way he was straight man to John Madden, um, mm -hmm. to mix my sporting metaphors. He was a great point guard. He could set it up, but then let Madden go the rest of the way. Or they almost say like, um, you know, a well refereed basketball game. He barely noticed the refs is the same true with a really good play by play person. I do think so. Um, at the risk of sounding like the get off, you know, get off my lawn, man. Um, I do think that current announcers just talk too much. Uh, they talk over the ambient noise of the game. They talk over the sounds of the crowd. Um, they forget the fact that I am watching the game, so I see what they're describing. Um, I don't need to know that somebody's at the 5, the 10, the 15, the 20, and he cuts left because I can see that part. That was the beauty of Summerall. It would be, um, I guess, if we were using modern football players, Tom Brady, Rob Gronkowski, touchdown. He didn't have to say Tom Brady drops back, surveys the field, rolls to his right. He throws it downfield. There's Gronkowski. Gronkow he, in four words, he described everything for you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so back to your, you know, your internships. I mean, when when did you 
have this recognition of the mistake? Was it kind of in immediate aftermath of, let's say, not getting positions that others were interviewing for? Did it reveal itself a little bit later when you had time to mature, reflect? And it, well, because you you've got you, you've got pride, maybe an overabundance of pride. I, I realized that I had made a mistake, but I don't think I truly appreciated the opportunity that I had missed until a few years later. Um, but fortunately, by the time I really sat down and did some self-reflection about it, um, I, I had a master's degree. I had a solid job um, in banking. I, I met someone um, and had a, a one and have had a wonderful life um, together. So it's one of those things. It's like in, in the moment it was embarrassing. A couple of years later, it was still a little embarrassing, but then realizing that my life doesn't take the turns it does if I had not made that mistake. So I think most of the time there is some good from our mistakes. Yeah. Well, and that is often true, or as you've talked about, the learning that comes from it, recognizing uh, um, the, the opportunity to not look that gift horse in the mouth the next time, a different gift horse. Mm-hmm comes along to seize a different opportunity. And as you were saying, put your all into it. So I think that's, I appreciate that, that reflection. You know, I had a chance uh, to interview, not to get too sidetracked on this, but uh, Daniel Pink, who wrote a book called The Power of Regret. And it sounds, you know, we were talking a little bit, mistakes often lead to regret. It sounds like your situation, your mistakes didn't lead to a huge amount of regret. No, I think in, I think it's uh, one size does not necessarily fit all other people who maybe who blew their opportunities can, can spiral. But I also feel like I was, I was fortunate. I don't know why I was given more than one or two opportunities, but, um, or maybe that's it. You're just given a lot of opportunities, but you have to get better at recognizing them. But um, I don't have any regrets over that now, because like I said, of the way my life turned out. So let's let's talk more about the life and teams of Johnny F. Bassett. Um, I'd, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts, and, and you, you, you know, you share really interesting stories in the book of some mistakes. You know, and I and I say that, you know, I guess with the recognition that I think, as you were saying, uh, Bassett was probably the most successful owner in each of the failed leagues mm-hmm. he was a part of. Is that fair to say? Yes, he always had that. Well, he always had that joke in the USFL when the USFL came along that when he was in the WFL, the World Football League, he was the richest owner. But then the United States Football League, he was the poorest uh, because he had lost most of his fortune in his first few uh, startups. And I guess another thing I really do like about Bassett and respect about him is I, I found him a little bit of a kindred spirit. Um, I can be a little bit of a showman at times. I love a good spectacle. Um, but he was very naive in the opportunities he had to establish a football team in the World Football League and to establish a hockey team in the World Hockey Association. I think he felt that as long as he could write checks, um, everything would work. Um, as long as his organizations were first class, everything would be fine. And that's, that's actually incredibly naive because when it comes to a professional sports league, you literally only are as strong as your weakest franchise. And so what happened in the world football league is his 
Memphis team was incredibly well-stocked with talent. It was well-funded. Every player I interviewed for that book said the training table, the training camp, the uh, road travel was on par with the NFL. Well, that was one island in a sea of misery. The other owners in the World Football League were not very well vetted by either Bassett or by the commissioner of the league. You know, they wrote those initial checks for their down payment, but then they didn't have the funds to actually put a sporting endeavor in place. And so um, I think that was something Bassett didn't truly appreciate until he lost his shirt and had to recover it when he went, you know, going from the seventies into the eighties. And he was in some really tough competitive situations. Um, you know, the first team uh, up in Toronto in the, the WHA, the, the, mm-hmm. the hockey league that was competing um, against the NHL and some teams ended up absorbed into the NHL, but you know, the, the Toronto Toros were, competing against the NHL Maple Leafs. They had the challenge of sharing an arena with the NHL owner who didn't really want to give them, um, you know, a good deal. And, uh, you know, there, there, there was one mistake you, you write about in the book where you, you described it as, I don't know if this was his worst mistake, mistake, but you described it as the worst mistake an owner can make. You yes. Can he undercuts his uh, head coach, um, Bob Bond. Or, uh, was the head coach of the Maple Leafs during their last year in Toronto. And uh, there was, it was a veteran team and Bassett's younger than some of the players on the team. I mean, he's only in his early thirties at the time. So some of his players like Frank Mahovlich are two years older than he is at this point. And they were struggling on ice. They were in a losing streak. They lost a heartbreaking game, I believe in Houston. And when they travel to Phoenix for their next game, some of the veteran players don't show up on time. You know, there's a curfew on road trips and the players don't show up on time. So the, the head coach finds them and the players go to Bassett to complain. And Bassett says the, you know, the, 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 the fines are vacant. You don't have to pay him anymore. And that's a really bad decision to make because that, that just took all the authority of your coach away. Um, and even the coach said that, you know, Bassett needs to be more concerned with being a boss and not everybody's buddy. Cause um, we have the term today, fanboy. Uh, Bassett was a bit of a fanboy at that time. And it, it really hurt him. It hurt his coach and it ultimately hurt the team. Well, I think there's a great, kind of broader transferable leadership lesson there for an organization. Um, you know, if uh, employees are doing an end around to you, don't undermine, don't undercut one of the leaders uh, who is in that chain, that leadership chain. Yeah. And you would like to think that, um, you know, somebody who's in his early thirties doesn't quite have the experience uh, to know that at that time, you know, because, and I want to be fair, he was the boss, not necessarily because he came up through the ranks, but he was the boss because he had the money to write the checks. And so once, it, you know, your, your, your checkbook balance doesn't always equate with your business acumen. Yeah. Well, it sounds like he had a lot of business acumen, you know, in trying to differentiate the Toros from the Maple Leafs. So having a lower ticket price, I mean, I was surprised. 
I guess not too surprised back then to see that the Maple Leafs were in the most expensive tickets in the league. That's certainly true today. Yes. Um, for for um, different reasons. But he was he was not trying to out Maple Leaf the Maple Leafs, which seems like smart business. If you're going to start a coffee business to compete against Starbucks, you don't want it to be the same, but a little bit better. You, you, you've got to be different. And some companies do that or they try. Yeah. And, and that is the one thing that he was very good at was reading the marketplace. The Maple Leafs, I think it was it's well over 50 years now since their last Stanley Cup championship. I think it was 1967. I was born in Florida. I didn't know anything about hockey um, until uh, I moved up north. But that price that they had to pay, uh, you know, the fans had to pay to get into Maple Leaf Garden. Maple Leaf Garden was a palace, so there was a certain amount of decorum that one had to follow when they went to Maple Leaf Gardens. It was expected that men would wear, you know, ties and hats. Women would wear dresses. You know, you, you, we think of that today when we're going to games in our flip-flops and sweatshirts. Um, that would have been frowned upon. And Bassett thought that that was their style. It works for them. But he was convinced that there was a significant population in Toronto who would want a more family-friendly environment, uh, one where loud rock and roll music would blare during breaks in the game, one where scantily clad cheerleaders, which a winter sport in Toronto, scantily clad cheerleaders, doesn't seem like the most... Uh, progressive thing to do now but you know thought that the, having those cheerleaders out there would benefit um inviting fans onto the ice uh during morning skates with the players and it did work the the one thing that cost bassett wasn't that he wasn't attracting fans he he got 10 12 13 14,000 people to come see this other this other team so he's right but he's not a very good politician. There is no other arena in Toronto that could really house a major league hockey team other than Maple Leaf Gardens. And so he's having to pay any money he makes through uh, ticket sales is actually going right into the Maple Leafs pockets because they're the ones that own Maple Leaf Gardens. So that, that after three years, that, just couldn't work anymore. So he moved his team to Birmingham, Alabama, a notorious hotbed of hockey, but he makes it work there because he studied all of America and he realized Birmingham, Alabama has a major civic rivalry with Atlanta. Atlanta's got hockey and basketball, football, baseball. Birmingham has nothing. So if I bring a major professional sports franchise to Birmingham, that's going to really sell well. And it did. Birmingham was so happy to have a major professional sports team to show big brother Atlanta. Hey, we're big time too now. Yeah. But it sounds like he was trying to make it a little bit like football on ice in terms of like a really physical, if you don't appreciate the finer points of the game, you can go to a hockey game and watch people hit each other. hard. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was uh he studied the, he studied the playbook of Paul bear Bryant, the great football coach. And realized that everybody in Alabama just loved the hitting and the defense. And so that's what he did. He, uh, to use the parlance of the time, he stocked his roster full of goons and enforcers. Um, if they scored, that was a happy accident. 
Um, and what they did was they just, they physically intimidated the opponent into missing a lot of shots and they won through attrition and, uh, they were, they were very popular in Alabama, but it was his inability to be very political again that cost him. Um, he signed a lot of players in the Canadian juniors. Uh, he emancipated the Canadian juniors. You know, these, these players who are 16, 17 years old are being forced to sign contracts where, you know, in 10 years they'll go play for the Maple Leafs, but they have to work in this very low paid minor mm-hmm. league system. Isn't it because there were age minimums like you might see today in the NFL or the NBA. Yeah. And so he, he said, you know what? A 17 year old can, uh, well, an 18-year-old, I'm sorry, an 18-year-old can get drafted by the military. Why can't he be drafted by a hockey team? And so since the WHA didn't have any kind of agreement, he just started signing all of these players. Um, and the one he could not afford to sign, Wayne Gretzky, he helped get into the World Hockey Association. And so the signing so angered the NHL that when the two sides finally did agree to a merger, one of their successful teams, the Birmingham Bulls, are left out. And that's, um, I know that there's a language, uh, that was just a major FU to Bassett. Yeah. Um, you know, that we'll, we'll hey, take that. these, yeah. these other teams, but you, you have to stay behind. So there are some mistakes there. And it seems like one of the running themes with these different leagues, um, is, you know, kind of overpaying. For players going beyond budgets or salary caps that was happening in the WFL. And it sounds like that was a lesson that the USFL in the early eighties, fair to say they, they didn't learn that lesson from the, the world football league WFL. Well, Bassett did. Uh, that mm-hmm. was another mistake yeah. of Bassett's. Uh, he felt that he had to show off. And so, I mean, they were astute signings because Toronto Toros was a playoff team. Birmingham was a playoff team. The Toronto Northmen slash Memphis Southmen, his world football league team, he convinced Larry Zonka, Paul Warfield, and Jim Kick to abandon the Miami Dolphins Super Bowl team and come play for him because he paid them millions of dollars. So he believed in the star system in the beginning. But what he discovered once again is if I have all of the stars, but none of the other teams do, the league won't last very long. And so when he goes into the United States Football League, roughly 10 years after the World Football League folds, he is a disciple of fiscal conservancy. He says we have to have a salary cap. We're not going to spend more than this amount of money for players. Uh, the only players that any team should sign should be the college players from their geographic area. Now that was a little, you know, clever on his part because he was in Florida at the time. And this was <laughs> at the time when Florida, Florida State and Miami were starting to churn out wonderful football players. The, the um, idea was that um, fans, there would be marketing appeal, come watch players you're familiar with. Correct. He, he hires an unknown football coach by the name, uh, the name of Steve Spurrier to be his head coach because Spurrier had won a Heisman trophy at the university of Florida. So um, he packs the stadium using that method, you know, that very low cost method still is getting 55, 60,000 people to come see an alternate professional football league that plays in the spring. 
And you and I are old enough to remember the USFL during its time, but we've also been old enough to remember the NFL Europe, the World League of American Football, two XFLs, the AAAF. Um, none of them were attracting 55,000 people mm-hmm. to the games. And I do remember, so, you know, part of the, the differentiation coming back to that point is that the USFL was playing in the spring. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 having grown up in Michigan, I went to, I know, at least one Michigan Panthers game. They won the championship that first season, which was, you know, somebody who was really into sports. That was exciting. They, their star receiver was Anthony Carter from the University of Michigan. So I, I didn't know the history of trying to have the regional, um, you know, players. But, you know, they, they, they seem to have a good thing going. And then, um, you know, ended up folding a few years later. And I'll try to keep the conversation on the side of Trump, Donald Trump, the businessman. Mm-hmm. You know, there was there was a uh, he ended up buying the New Jersey generals and he was the driving force behind kind of trying to move the seasons to the fall to more directly compete with the NFL. Right. Was that sort of the, the key decision that was a, a big mistake? Correct. And I, and I think it's always wise to keep, you know, any discussion of Trump and Bassett in the realm of just football and business in the 1980s. Um, Donald Trump came into the USFL and was actually considered to be a savior a little bit because the first owner of the New Jersey Generals, a very nice gentleman, his name was Jay Walter Duncan. He was an Oklahoma oil man and just seemed to be just a friendly guy, um, but was not much of a football owner. And so there's this danger of the USFL losing its franchise in the media market of the world. So when Donald Trump comes in and buys the generals, he's hailed as a hero. And, and I think rightly so in the beginning, because he established a presence. Uh, he knew how to get the generals. Um, he knew how to equally get himself on the front page and the generals <laughs> on the front of the sports page. Uh, at the same time. So he was, he was very good with the publicity, but I don't know that he came into the USFL um, honest about his ultimate intentions. Uh, he had been frustrated in his attempts to purchase an NFL team. And so I don't know that he was uh, genuine um, as an owner. You know, and he gets into the USFL and he immediately starts saying we should go to the fall and compete head to head um, with the NFL because his whole desire, his whole plan, which has come out in multiple books, my own and other uh, excellent books like Paul Reith's book on the history of the USFL was to injure the NFL enough that it would force two or three USFL teams to go in the same way the American basketball association had a handful of teams go in. The WHA had a number of teams go in. He didn't care if Michigan, Tampa Bay, Oakland went away as long as his generals got into the NFL. That was what was important to him. And, and, and Bassett realized that. Bassett realized right away. It's like, and Bassett was one of his biggest buddies in the beginning because Bassett thought he found a kindred spirit. Um, and I always have to walk that fine line with Mr. Bassett's family when I say, well, I don't know. I think Donald and John had a lot in common. Maybe, you know, maybe the level of honesty is different, but they had a lot in common. Um, but once he realizes, oh, this, 
I think this guy's just trying to work his way into the NFL and has no care for the league as a whole. That's when they became uh, two of the most famous combatants in uh, sports in the 1980s. Well, I mean, it was probably, if it had worked, it would have been a cheaper way to get into the NFL, leveraging this lower cost New Jersey Generals team Mm -hmm. um, to to try, you know, to follow that track record, like you said, in other leagues, including um, the ABA and the NBA. Like this had happened a lot. So um, it wasn't an original idea. It just didn't pan out that way with um, the loss, the the anti the antitrust suit, and um, you know, the famous one dollar settlement against the uh, the NFL. But when you talk about you know that relationship souring between Trump, I'm going to just read a sentence from the book here. Where, um, you, you wrote Bassett sent a letter. When you talk about um, he, he didn't like uh, bad mouthing the league. Bassett sent a letter to the New Jersey owner warning the New Yorker he would be punched in the mouth the next time he insulted Bassett or other USFL personnel. Um, did, did you get, imagine at some point you got to read the entire letter. I don't think it was reprinted in full in the book, right? No, I, I did not reprint it in full. Um, Jeff Perlman actually found that uh, the sports writer, he wrote another history of the USFL um, a couple of years ago. I think it was called football for a buck. And he found that letter in his research. I, I worked extensively with the Bassett family and they had not known of that letter until Mr. Mm-hmm. Perlman found it. And it was on, it, it was impeachable evidence. It's on old Tampa Bay <laughs> bandit letterhead. Yeah. Um, and it just says, you know, if you continue to badmouth my employees, if you continue to badmouth the league, I will have no compunction in punching you in the nose. And what I loved was, because Canadians do have the stereotype of being exceedingly polite mm-hmm. after threatening to punch him in the nose, he <laughs> signs it cordially yours, Johnny <laughs> F. Bassett. And I, and I think there was a bit of a Freudian slip there. That letter was unimpeachable evidence oh, okay. of a letter sent to a, a impeachable impeached. Couldn't resist that. Um, so you, you mentioned Wayne Gretzky and, you know, looking at the footnotes and, you know, and the research, the original research that you did, um, tell, tell me about the phone call with Wayne Gretzky. Um, Cause I, I, I would have been really nervous or like, did you have any jitters or make any mistakes and talking to the great one? Oh, uh, Oh, I had, I had jitters uh, all the time uh, during the writing of this is um, I just, I criticized Bast a little bit for being a fanboy when, uh, he went be uh, you know behind the back of his coach to to let the players off the hook for fines but um a lot of what i write is because i was interested in this as a child and i wanted to know more about it as an adult because when you're a child watching sports you don't realize how complex and complicated they are the older we get we start to appreciate the nuance and so when i reached out to start writing this book i wanted to talk to zonka Warfield. I wanted to talk to uh, Gretzky. And so, um, yeah, before my scheduled phone calls with them, I was, uh, you know, almost like Stuart Smiley sitting there looking in the mirror going, gosh, darn it. I deserve to talk to them. They've got things to say and they'll really like me. And so um, I went through uh, did my interviews. And the one thing I never requested, you know, I, I never asked for any special favors. Uh, the only signature I needed was on the release. I didn't, yeah. you know, say, Hey, can I mail you a hockey card? 
right. to sign or, <laughs> Hey, you know, my, 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 uh, my nephew, Mark is a really big hockey fan. Would you leave a voicemail for him? You know, yeah. cause that's not a professional thing to do, but in, right. the, in the back of my head, I was thinking about that a lot. <laughs> You don't, you don't want to be like the uh, the Chris Farley character on Saturday Night Live who was all nervous <laughs> and flustered trying to interview Paul McCartney. Yeah. Hey, you remember that time when you were like going to L.A. from Edmonton? So, um, but no, it was it was very nice. Um, I won't talk about people who are not particularly friendly. Uh, one of the things I do enjoy is when a star of Gretzky's caliber ends up being nicer than you could possibly imagine or larry zonka who comes across so gruff and surly sometimes tough yeah was just such a teddy bear when he was talking about mr bassett you know he just you know he didn't have a long time in the wfl but he he adored the man Hmm. and so that that was a that's always the nice part of this well job yeah um, so I want to talk a little bit before we wrap up, um, you had this interesting timing and opportunity, um, to talk about something I learned from you when we had talked, uh, maybe a month or so ago, a new version of the USFL. I didn't realize this was coming. Tell us a little bit about that. And I know I'm going to ask you to make a prediction. Will they be able to avoid repeating the mistakes of USFL one? Well, I, I think they will, um, it does seem a little odd to me that this this new spring league is just rebranding themselves. I, from my understanding, because uh, there's not a lot of reading material out there yet that's concrete, they have started hiring some coaches. I believe Jeff Fisher is going to be one of the coaches. Um, but all eight teams are going to be based in Birmingham, Alabama. So there is a Michigan Panther from your home. Uh, and there's a Tampa Bay Bandit from my home, but neither team are ever going to play in Michigan or Florida, respectively. It's all going to be in Birmingham. Yeah. I, I, sorry to interrupt. I did read something earlier today that they say eventually the idea is that the teams will go to yeah. their proper homes, but who knows if it lasts that long. But yeah. I mean, but the, you know, the last two leagues that have tried never made it past the halfway point of their respective seasons. This, you know, the second version of the XFL and the, and the AAF, um, I, I attributed it to the fact that, you know, you and I could go out and buy, uh, a couple of guitars and call ourselves the Beatles, but that doesn't make us the Beatles. And so, uh, well, just it would because, be a lot more expensive to buy the name of the Beatles yeah. than the, the, the USFL name was probably cheap. Whoever still owned that. Yeah, this is true. But for those of us of a certain age, um, yeah, I guess seeing the 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 Lone Horseman logo uh, will be a nice treat, but it's going to be very hollow, you know, in a way, because that that's not Gary Anderson, John Reeves, or Chuck Pickcock out there on the field. It it's it was a wonderful three years, but it had its time and it had its opportunity, and now it's it's gone, and I don't know that you can recreate that in any way. I mean, this is a different crystal ball. Do you do you think the USFL would have survived if it had remained a spring league? I don't know if it's still around today, um, but I do think eventually people like Bassett, uh, people like uh, Alfred Taubman, 
uh, people like Miles Tannenbaum of uh, the Philadelphia Stars, which was a good team. There were enough solid owners in there that had they stayed in the spring, they would have worked out some kind of detente with the NFL. Because about four years after the demise, maybe yeah, four or five years after the demise of the USFL, we get the World League of American Football, which was spring football, but minor league football for the NFL. And I don't know if Bassett, you know, I, I think Bassett became more circumspect. Maybe he wouldn't have liked being referred to as a minor league owner, but I think if it meant keeping his bandits alive, he, he would have been happy to be feeding players into the NFL as long as he could still run his franchise his way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there was one mistake you wrote about um, going back to the start of the USFL that Bassett tried warning the other owners about. They were going to skip preseason games and mm-hmm. just the first games they wanted to have a big splash. First games would be televised real games not having the fans being upset about paying the old, you know, the, the still current NFL practice of paying full price for a preseason game that doesn't mean anything. And Bassett warned them. And you know, it sounded like there was sloppy play, low scoring games. People didn't like that. If I'm remembering right, the XFL made that exact same mistake. Yeah, all of the leagues have. Um, I think they have some controlled scrimmages. I think the AAF and the recent version of the XFL had controlled scrimmages. Um, which is what Bassett actually did, but put them on television because that's Johnny Bassett. Um, but it's one of those things. I know we still have the, the, the huge thing now with the NFL going eventually to 18 games, which I love football, but my goodness, that's just a lot of football. Um, there's talk about maybe getting rid of preseason games altogether and, I don't know that, you know, the fan, the fans complain about the price of admission and rightly so. Um, I do think in a perfect world, the NFL owners would just allow people to come into the stadiums for free and just pay for the beer and the parking <laughs> um, for these yeah. practice, you know, let people who don't normally get to see NFL games come in to see an NFL game. Um, and we can laugh about, Oh, well, you know, Tom Brady doesn't need preseason. Well, but the, the, fifth round draft pick from Northwestern who's desperately trying to make a roster as a cornerback. Yeah. He could use those preseason games. Yeah, for sure. And um, there's, there's benefit, but yeah, I can see from a a fan standpoint, the value isn't necessarily, isn't necessarily there. So um, there's the business issues of uh, these sports leagues that like, I think as you were maybe alluding to as kids, we didn't really have any, visibility to. I thought the Michigan Panthers were, uh, you know, had a pretty cool logo. I had a Michigan Panthers t-shirt. The USFL had some big name players. I mean, it was, there was something there. So it's a shame it didn't work out. Um, You know, final question for you, Dennis. Um, You know, there are some startup leagues from the last couple of decades that have avoided some of the state of Johnny Bassett's leagues. And that it's not like, you know, again, the failures were his fault. He didn't own the league. He owned a mm-hmm. team. But uh, MLS, Major League Soccer, um, WNBA, I mean, there, there's different dynamics. But like, what are your thoughts on some of these leagues that have survived, if not even thrived a little bit, things they've done differently, mistakes they've avoided? Well, I do enjoy the WNBA in that uh, it does help. They, they 
they have a lifeline. They have a safety net in the NBA. Um, but they have not been afraid of allowing themselves to expand and contract and expand and just follow the business. Nobody has overreacted. Uh, and I think that's another been, been another strength of MLS. Um, I do not proclaim myself much of a professional soccer fan. I was when I was a boy when you know we had the Tampa Bay Rowdies and the old North American Soccer League, but I haven't fallen back in love with that sport because it went away uh, for such a long time. But once again, the MLS has done a very good job of not overreacting when the market went down. You know, they've ridden out the storms and they've figured out who they are and they figured out where their best markets are. Um, and I think that's one of the things I enjoy that you don't necessarily have to have a powerhouse in New York. If your powerhouse is the Portland Timbers, you're still going to have a strong league because people want to see talent. Uh, television wants to see all of the talent in New York. But you and I as fans, if the best basketball player in the world is playing for Sacramento, we will figure out a, watch, a way to watch the King games. Yeah. Time zones being the biggest challenge then for that. But yeah. <laughs> Um, and, you know, I think just maybe one other thought and, uh, you know, one league that has failed and, you know, it was a lot of fun to go to was uh, arena football. Now, I know the concept still exists, but the original that AFL, the arena football league, um, for what it's worth, just uh, my lament that that didn't survive. I, I've, I'll, I'll probably never get to go to a Super Bowl. I did get to go to a, a, an arena bowl championship the, game and uh, drive. Well, they won some championships, but I went to a uh, Arizona Rattlers oh, okay. championship bowl um, in Phoenix. So, you know, it's, it's, it, it's a tough business. It seems these sports leagues, you look at the, the, the major established leagues and you think they have a license to print money. And I can see why that would attract competitors easier said than done to make a success. out of And, um, and I, and I could be wrong. Um, this is the thing when, you know, impromptu conversations, sometimes what I'm thinking may not be completely factual, but my understanding with the arena league is they expanded too quickly. They kind of made the mistake the United States football league did. They expanded too quickly. And then when they had to start contracting franchises, even the owners of successful franchises started to panic and maybe not put as much money into it as they did. I think they ended up their final season did they just have four teams i think it had really crumbled yeah it was a, a shell of the uh former league but again i think it's fun exploring these things not because any of us are going to own a sports team but i think there are general business lessons that one especially of be careful that you don't grow too fast because there are many profitable businesses that end up not having cash flow and they fail so Lots of lessons to be uh, drawn uh, from sports and, and more specifically from what you've documented here, Dennis, uh, the life and teams of Johnny F. Bassett, Maverick Entrepreneur of North American Sports. We've been joined today by uh, Dennis Crawford, not cover up your name on the title that I'm holding up. Uh, Dennis Crawford, you can find it on Amazon. It's, uh, it's, it's a, a, if you're a sports fan and or a business entrepreneur, book reader. Um, it, it's a fun overlap of those two genres. Um, 
So Dennis, I want to thank you. I want to thank the cat who made uh, an appearance over your shoulder for those who are watching on YouTube. <laughs> Chuck is now an international superstar. <laughs> well, Chuck was, uh, th- those who were listening on the podcast feed would have never known. So give Chuck a little extra um, cat food or something uh, <laughs> as, a, as a thanks. But Dennis, thank you uh, for um, being here as a guest today. It's been a lot of fun, really interesting book and interesting life of Johnny F. Bassett. So thank you. Thank you again. Thank you for the invite. Well, thanks again to Dennis Crawford for being my guest today. To learn more about his book, which uh, if you're a fan of sports and business and the intersection of those, it's a really fun read. To learn more about all of that, look for links in the show notes or go to markgraven.com slash mistake 157. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me my favorite mistake podcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is my favorite mistake podcast.com.